The following is a recording of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information, visit gpts.edu. Be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Gracious Father in heaven, we glorify your name this morning because of that great inheritance, which is ours in Jesus Christ. And that you have done for us what we could not do for ourselves. You have caused us to be born again. That we might have this wonderful salvation. And so we pray now that by your blessing, that you would open the eyes of our hearts. For we acknowledge apart from your blessing, we cannot understand your truth. So by the same Holy Spirit who inspired these words, help us to understand this truth. And we ask that you would apply it to us in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Most of you know that one of the oldest questions posed against Christianity is why a good God would allow suffering. Why do bad things happen to good people? It's the question the world asks. These questions are, of course, lobbed against Christianity in an attempt to dismantle it, but the Bible has always had clear answers to these questions. One, God actually created a perfect world Suffering is the result of sin, which we brought into the world by rebelling against God. And two, there are no good people who don't deserve suffering. There's actually only been one good person who suffered. His name was Jesus. He volunteered for it. These questions of theodicy are really no challenges to Christianity at all. But nevertheless, we do need to recognize that questions like this are a little bit more different when it becomes personal. And you gentlemen going into the ministry or who plan on going into the ministry, you need to know when people in your congregations are hurting, they're not really asking the questions of theodicy. They're not looking for that philosophical answer. When they're experiencing suffering, when you're experiencing suffering, instead they're tempted to ask, why God? And perhaps even question, God, do you still love me? Why would God ordain trials, even hard trials, for those whom he loves? Now, Peter addresses this very issue by writing to Christians whom he knew were going to face trials. And he wants his readers to know that these are ordained by God for our good. And we can even rejoice through them 
because of what we have in Christ Jesus. And so there are three things I hope we, we will see in our text this morning. First, Christians rejoice in spite of trials. Christians rejoice in spite of trials. Secondly, trials prove and refine our faith. Trials prove and refine our faith. And thirdly, we rejoice in Christ who brings us through trials. Now, it is helpful to understand some context in the immediately preceding passage, uh, which I read, but we're not going to be looking at. uh, The apostle Peter blessed God, which is to say that he praised God as the acknowledged source of blessing. That's what it means when someone says, bless God. Uh, He's acknowledging and praising God as the source of blessings we have received. And he lists a couple of them, beginning with salvation. It is not we who caused ourselves to be born again, but God, because only he can change a sinner's heart. We also have an inheritance kept in heaven for us, and we ourselves are guarded through faith, by which Peter means we are justified by faith alone, but this too is a gift of God. And this means that God is the one who causes his children to persevere until that day when we receive this promised inheritance. Just as God's work in Christ was finished, God will finish his work in all of his children, in you. And there's a reason that Peter begins the way that he does. He is highlighting our blessings and the sovereignty of God in order to strengthen the believer's hope because Peter knows these Christians are about to face persecution. And he wants them and us to know that beyond our present suffering lies an eternal glory. That we are held in the hands of a loving father through it all. And so it's with that perspective in view, Peter turns his attention to suffering. He writes, beginning in verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. It is a little bit interesting, isn't it, that Peter says we rejoice and we are grieved. How could that be so? Well, Peter's point is that Christians rejoice in spite of trials. We do this with a perspective that hopes in God. Even when our present reality hurts and we are grieved, We can, at the same time, rejoice because of these promises in God, which he has just uh, named for us. Now, this is necessary because if you lose sight of heaven, if you lose sight of the sovereignty of God, then the hardships of this life in a fallen world may very well crush you. Now, I must say, I do not like it when people try to encourage others with what are actually empty sayings. For instance, if you have a a loved one who is undergoing a dangerous surgery, sometimes you'll hear people say, don't worry, she'll be okay. How can you say that? How can you say, don't worry, she'll be okay? Without a guarantee, this is a hope based on nothing more than positive thinking on the, well, I don't want to think about the alternative. And so I just like to say, don't worry, it'll be okay to try and assuage their fears. Well, what if it doesn't go well? If the only hope you have is to cross your fingers and deny the reality that things could go the other way, then when things in life do end painfully, it will crush you. 
you will be devastated. It's with an eternal perspective. Then this means that even when there is grief, I can rejoice anyway because I have guaranteed hopes. Hopes for an unfading inheritance. Hopes for a resurrection. Hope for a salvation yet to be revealed at the coming of our Savior. Now, this is not at all to dismiss pain, which we do experience now. You know, when Jesus came to the tomb of Lazarus, he didn't brush it aside and be like, get over it. Wait, I'm, I'm about to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knew he was about to raise him, and yet he still wept at the tomb at the reality of what sin had brought upon those whom he loved, death. Yet we know that grief does not have the final word in Christ. Christ does promise to wipe away every tear from our eyes when he ushers his children into that place where there is no more pain, that place where there is no more death or any of the myriad of turmoils and consequences that come with it. So how do I rejoice in the midst of suffering, real suffering? With an eternal perspective that remembers that all of our grief, though it is real, is nevertheless temporary and will soon give way to indescribable joys. Now, I want you to notice here the way Peter describes these trials as he is uh, preparing to speak of them. He writes to these Christians, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now, why do I draw attention to words that you and I might use in conversation as filler? Well, for Peter, it's not filler. This points to the fact that trials are not by chance. They're not random. Peter is actually saying that when you have trials, they are necessary. That they are a part of God's will for your good. Paul writes in Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Does the Apostle Paul really mean all things? I mean, all? Yes. Poor health. A bad diagnosis. Financial uncertainty. Loss of loved ones. Persecution. Reviling. In our text, Peter is addressing suffering, and he says, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now, one of the things I I said earlier is that Christians also rejoice in the fact that God is sovereign, even over our sufferings. Now, I know some people are well-meaning, but it's absolutely wrong when someone tries to comfort another with words like, "Oh, oh, God didn't do this. God didn't want these things to happen. You hear that? When you go outside of this seminary, there are plenty of churches where people will say things like that. God didn't want this to happen. How is that comforting? To know that pain in this life, it was outside of God's control. He didn't want it to happen, but it did anyway. Well, if he's not in control, who is? Now, let me just note for a moment, this does not mean that 
God is the author of evil. People are still responsible for their actions, and the sovereignty of God never negates that. But God does ordain whatsoever comes to pass, so that when we face suffering and trials, we need to remember that this is not a product of chance. This is not the forces of evil outside of God's control, but instead this is something the Lord has ordained as necessary for our good. And so the trials, Peter wants to tell us here, they prove and they refine our faith. Why would God ordain trials? Now, Peter's text here, it's not exhaustive. Uh, There's many reasons for which God may ordain trials, but here is what he writes to these Christians in verse 7. So that the tested genuineness, genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So why does God ordain suffering? Why does God ordain painful trials? Well, one reason which Peter gives to us here is that it proves the genuineness of one's faith. We could say it this way. Suffering separates the believers from the pretenders. In Mark 4, Jesus tells a parable, which everyone calls the parable of the soils, where seed is cast into four different soils, the seed representing the call of the gospel, and the soils being different responses. Now, don't forget that in this parable, Jesus said that of the four, three of these different types of soils at first all look the same. They all look like something is growing, which might actually bear fruit. And in actuality, only one of them is genuine. Only one turns to bear fruit 30, 60, 100 fold. What makes the difference between the fruit bearing faith in good soil and the one on the rocks that withers? It's testing. Persecution proves that the seed in the rocky soil was only surface level only. It didn't have roots. Now, we need to understand For those that fall away, it is not the case that suffering makes a believer into an unbeliever. Rather, it demonstrates they never were one. That there had never been roots that had gone into the ground. That it was nothing more than just a surface, a show that looked like genuine faith. In essence, testing reveals who the true Christians are. How so? Well, faithfulness in the midst of trials proves you actually do believe Christ's promises. You know, what if God doesn't give you the life you desire, the things you want? I mean, you, most of you men, I imagine, want marriage. You want children. You want a home. You want good health. You want a career. What if you don't get some of these things? Do you still love God if you don't? Do you still think it's worth it to follow him 
if your prayers for these things remain unanswered. You know, it's easy to profess faith if you think you can have all of the desires of your heart now and heaven. Who wouldn't choose that? I mean, that is the appeal of a prosperity gospel. Have your cake and eat it too. But what if faith means it's going to bring persecution? Now we find out what you really believe, how committed you are when it costs you. Now we see where your heart truly lies, what you really think it's worth, because those there are those who respond to suffering by thinking, this isn't worth it. Instead, I, I need to find something else. In fact, I should just indulge in sin, eat, drink, and be merry, because you only go around once. It has been said by some that the same sun that softens the wax hardens the clay. Trials, which, by the way, they're not just persecutions for faith. This includes all suffering in this fallen world. This is an inclusive term. This reveals who has genuine faith in Christ. The fact that you're willing to persevere in the midst of pain, in the midst of trials, demonstrates you have been transformed by God's grace. That you do believe his promises. And that though, no matter how much this world hurts, you still value Jesus Christ as superior to everything that this world offers as an alternative. And so you cling to him no matter what. That's the tested genuineness of our faith, faith in these necessary trials. Now, continuing this uh, analogy, Peter compares genuine faith to gold in the fire. Fire burns away the impurities, so that then only that which is real gold remains, and that which was mixed with it, which isn't actually gold, is consumed. This is what trials then do to the genuine faith. It exposes the false faith for the superficial thing that it was, but for genuine faith, it purifies it. What happens when we experience trials? We long all the more for that better country out of a recognition this fallen, sin-filled world is not my home. The more this world hurts, the more we realize, I don't belong here. I belong with Christ. What do these trials do? They grow us in a dependence upon God and not upon our own strength. They reveal to us just how weak we really are and how much I need Christ every single day. Trials, what do they do? Experientially. They force us into prayer. They grow us in patience. We grow to learn that Christ is sufficient. We grow to look more and more like Christ. Now, the crucible may be hot, but that is where the gold of your faith is made most pure. But faith is actually better than gold, Peter here says. So the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, it perishes though it is tested by fire. In our own world, gold is a marker of wealth, and it can be used to buy just about anything. But Peter says, faith is more precious than gold. You cannot buy forgiveness of sins. You cannot buy that heavenly inheritance. That only comes 
by faith in Christ. And we actually see here also, we're reminded that we think gold is permanent. It's not. It too perishes. Your faith and all that is bound up with it, love for God, love for others, holiness, that's something that actually lasts into eternity. And so it's far superior to any of the riches of this world. It's one of the reasons the Proverbs say that wisdom, wisdom being the fear of the Lord, is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom is far superior to silver and gold. Devoting your life, your very limited time, your very limited energy, and using it in pursuit of something that lasts forever is far superior to that which is here but for a moment. That's why pursuit of wisdom Wisdom found in God, in Christ, is far superior than pursuit of all of the perishing wealth of this age. And if you wish to know your value to God, how did he purchase his elect? Not with gold, not with silver, or the wealth of heaven, but by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to suffer the wrath of God and die in our place. Your faith is more precious in the sight of heaven than any shiny piece of metal. And so although it may hurt in the moment, and very often we don't understand all of God's purposes, why he ordains some of the things that he does, he has deemed it fit. Because it is so precious to him, both to prove our faith and to refine it. It is of that infinite value to him. And so what's the result? The result here is that your faith, your faith results in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, what's interesting about this is that since this comes at the revelation of Christ, it seems Peter is actually talking about believers. Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. One commentator, uh, Paul Gardner, writes this, quote, They have suffered in many ways, but their faith has been tried and proven. They are more valuable to God as his faithful people than any amount of gold. And so on that day, their great value is recognized publicly by God, and they are crowned with glory and honor. This is precisely what Christ promised when he spoke of that day, when he sits on his judgment seat. He will say to his elect, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Notice that Christ even praises and rewards those servants of his who are faithful now in this life, in the midst of suffering. And of course, all of this then rebounds back onto God, glorifying the very one who gave us faith. We didn't cause ourselves to be born again. He is the one who did that. He is the one who makes us persevere. And so Revelation 4 shows us that picture of the elders around Christ's throne. 
laying their crowns back at the feet of the glorified Christ. Right now, Peter wants to highlight for us this aspect, that Christ does praise his faithful servants. And one day he will put on display just how precious we are in his sight. We ought to keep that before our eyes, especially in the midst of suffering. Our ultimate hope is the revelation of Jesus Christ, that point in which we finally see him. But you know, not everything is in the future. We also have uh, things in which we rejoice even now. He writes, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You can see here in this text, there's this uh, comparison between what we now possess and what we shall have in the future. And although we don't currently see Jesus, we do love him and we do believe him. And we even rejoice with inexpressible joy. How? Because of that hope which is ours. That hope that we know we shall receive a great inheritance and be one day openly vindicated and even praised by Christ. But we also rejoice in the knowledge that even now I have this assurance of salvation. No, this is not a hope in the way the world uses the term hope. The world says, I hope it doesn't rain. When scripture speaks of hopes, it's talking about things we know we shall receive. We just don't yet see them. You know, the believer doesn't have to go to bed each night with a guilty conscience or wrestling with fears of an existential crisis or even fears of whatever tomorrow may bring. Knowing that, yes, tomorrow may yet have hardship. This whole next season of my life may be a difficult one of suffering. And yet, the believer also knows that, too, is fleeting. And it's held in the hands of my sovereign Father in heaven. And so right now, what marks the life of the believer is love and belief. We love God because he loved us first. And this is reflected in seeking to obey him. Jesus said, John 14, 15, I hope you know this verse. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so this is one of those ways that we express that we have this hope. Even if it means more suffering. I'm not going to be conformed to this world around me. I'm not going to parrot what this world wants to hear and to see. Though I do not yet see Christ, I love him. And this is carried out and expressed in seeking to be obedient to his revealed will. That's the way I demonstrate, yes, I do love him. Yes, my hopes are in him, not here. And I also believe. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith and not by sight. Yet very soon a day is coming when our 
faith gives way to sight, when Jesus Christ is revealed and all of those whose faith is proven as refined gold shall be displayed as the faithful and beloved objects of God for all to see. Right now, the Christian life is one of suffering and then glory. And as we do this, this is walking in the path of our Savior. His life was one of suffering first and then glory. And we can know that our own suffering now is not in vain. Because the greatest suffering there ever was, was the crucifixion of the Lord of glory. And that was ordained by God for the greatest of good, the salvation of all of his elect. And if God so ordains that for good, then so too can God ordain our trials, our suffering for good. With the end result of the Lord Jesus Christ being praised. He's the one who ordains it. He is the one who upholds it that we might be proven and refined and ultimately result in the praise of our Savior. Amen. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are sovereign and that we can trust in your almighty hand with whatever it is that you ordain. Though we confess that sometimes trials in this life are very hard, it is a reminder to us that this world is not our home and that you are purifying your people. And so when you ordain trials in each of our lives, we pray that these would prove the genuineness of our faith and that we would not be driven away from you, but driven even more toward you. Use trials as a means of building us up in love for you, in conformity to the image of your Son, And we long for that day when we shall see him face to face and be in his rest. We anxiously await that day and pray, Lord Jesus, quickly come. We ask in his name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information, please visit gpts.edu.